Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. As we continue into our series this August, uh, last week Bishop Harris was here. This week, another good friend of ours. In fact, the only people we have in this pulpit are people that we know personally and are in relationship with and we have confidence and trust in. And Alicia and I were trying to figure out earlier whether it's been four or five years now that she's been coming out and joining us here. But whether it's been four or five, it's been a long time. She is a good, dear friend. She grew up in Rochester. Uh, New York, but she did her graduate studies here at Marygrove uh, in Detroit, so we keep trying to claim her as a Detroiter. She is a hockey freak, loves hockey, uh, and is deeply committed on the personal level to playing it as well. She speaks in many universities and campuses around the country, so would you please very warmly welcome Alicia Wood. I... I, um, I told the first service that um, he's, I think Randy's continuously trying to turn me into a, a Detroiter. And, uh, you know, uh, one day hoping that I bow the, the knee to the Red Wings and the Lions and stuff. But I'm holding on to those Boston Bruins and, dare I say, Buffalo Bills. Um, but my message is going to be much more hopeful than that. Just don't worry, okay? Uh, but, no, I definitely grew up in Rochester. And, and remember, do you remember those, like, strive for five Super Bowl runs Jim Kelly and the Bills had? Yeah, I remember all those as a kid as well. And so one of the great things about coming back here is I actually come back to a church where I, like, see people and I know when I hug them, I say, hello, how are you? And all of those really fun things, which is really exciting uh, for me. And I, I walked in the door, and of course, you know, the monsoon decided to happen um, early this morning when I come in. And so I'm like, I got the suitcase, you know, I got the 100-pound computer bag, and I'm trying to not look a mess when I stand in front of you at the same time, because I have no umbrella anything. So I'm coming up, and here's Mel rushing to the door to, to let me on in and make sure I can make it in the door okay. And then, of course, Jake is helping me with getting all the slides and all, the, all of these things together. Um, and, you know, anytime a pastor gives you... Uh, the platform of his church is a big deal. This is his flock that God's entrusted into him. And so I just thank Randy for always trusting me year after year or however, just to come and, and be with you all. And in a year that's been quite crazy, I was here last year, believe it or not. But, you know, this, this past year has uh, gotten somewhat better, but we're still doing a lot of things that aren't in person. And so whenever I get the opportunity to be with a large group of people and actually see faces and remember that objects move and breathe and aren't like one-dimensional, it's really, really exciting. And so thank you again for for having me. I want to speak with you today on something that uh, is going to be a little bit different. Uh, As a Christian apologist, you know, I'm so used to kind of giving evidence and rationality and all these really good reasons as to why I believe Christianity is true. But today I was asked to share a little bit of a story, of my story of my, my route and my journey on why I'm a Christian. Now, I will tell you, this is my answer for 2021. If you were to ask me this question next year or you asked me this question five years ago, I probably would have a different answer. 
Because what I find is as I grow in Christianity, I find that there's things that become more and more beautiful to me or things that I'm like, oh, I really love that or oh, that's my latest new exciting thing. And so my story changes a bit as to what is, what is it today? And so what I want to share with you a bit is kind of where, where, where I am today. But if I come back a few years now, I might have a different answer, but we'll deal with that then. But regardless, I grew up in a, in a Christian home. I grew up going to church on Sunday morning. We went to Sunday school. I did the Sunday evening thing. I did the youth group during the week or Wednesday night service. I read our daily bread. How many of you remember those our daily breads? Are they still around even? Yeah. I grew up reading our daily bread. Sit there with my little, you know, little verse and your cute little story and, then, and that kind of thing. And as a kid, if somebody would say, why are you a Christian? It would be pretty, pretty basic. It would be, well, you know what? It's because something had to make this. Something had to make uh, this world or this tree or, you know, or this is what I was told is true or this is what my experience is. So it would have been pretty basic. And that's fine because, you know, you're seven, right? At some point I became a Christian. I don't remember my conversion, so I must have been very young. But at some point I was like, I believe this. This is what I hold to be true. But, like, often people do is they go to college and things tend to get a little interesting when that happens. And I actually was no different. I got to college and I went to a Christian college, which was an amazing Christian college, actually. And I, I, I uh, had a really good experience there. But part of being at this college was that you had to take an Old Testament course and a New Testament course. And the professor who taught this course, I can't remember if it was Old Testament or New Testament, was an amazing man of God. And he helped me to understand and see God in a whole new way. And I remember sitting in this one Bible class on my Christian college, and he was explaining how the Bible came together and how we got, and I just had never thought about it. This is all, I, just hadn't, I didn't think it fell from the sky. I just had never thought about it. And then he kind of talked about where there were some other letters that were not included because of certain reasons. And I was like, wait, what? What are you, what are you telling me? And all of a sudden, I was like, I don't know if I can trust this Bible. And so I remember walking out of class that day, that 50-minute class, hour and 20-minute class, whatever it was, and walking out of that class and saying, there is no way that there is a God. And that one class period shattered 18, 19 years of church and study and all these kind of things. I'm walking back to my dorm, and I'm looking at the trees and the grass. I'm looking at the sky, and I'm like, this is all there is. It's like everything kind of just shrunk. And so I got back to my, my dorm room, and who was I going to tell? I was the person that people came to for prayer. I was the person that people came to if they needed help or understanding something in Scripture. I was in the gospel choir. Like, there was nobody I felt comfortable telling, so I didn't tell a soul that I didn't believe anymore. And this went on for several weeks. But there were certain things that had happened in my life prior to this that I just couldn't swing. So there was a certain prayer in particular that I had prayed and that I, nobody knew, but I had asked God for something. Nobody knew about it. And he met that need in the, by the deadline. And I was like, okay, Alicia, if you're going to say that there is no God, that's, or that Christianity isn't true, that's fine. But you are talking with somebody. Something heard you. Something's there. So you can continue to freak out because you don't know the answer to a particular question about the Bible, or you can, you can start to kind of say, what was it that I was engaging with? 
And it kind of began to be willing to go on the journey again. Now, many years on, I'm much more, I have much more greater understanding of why those letters weren't included in the Bible. And one of the big reasons is that one of the criteria for things to be included in the New Testament is it had to be written by someone who was a follower of Jesus or, or a follower of that disciple. Okay, someone who had an eyewitness encounter with Jesus, firsthand knowledge, or was a follower of that person, so they got it from the, from the eyewitness. The only exception is the book of Hebrews, potentially. So one of the reasons that those other letters didn't get included is because they were written 100, some of them were written like 100 plus years after Jesus rose from the dead. His disciples would have been long dead by then. So it ruins the credibility and accuracy of those particular letters. Makes sense now. When I was 18 or 19, I just panicked. One of the things that I would love to encourage you with today is to let you know, friends, that there's going to be things that you're going to encounter with Christianity that you're not going to know what to do with. Don't panic. Don't, don't freak out and say, oh, this whole thing can't be true. Don't do what I did. Remember that just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean that there isn't an answer. It just means that you don't know that answer. But there's plenty of people out there who are dealing with these questions all the time. So just go and look it up. That's what my approach would, should have been if it was a little bit healthier. It was not what my approach was. But spoiler alert, I believe now, so I think everything turned out okay. Okay, so either way, that was, that was kind of my journey. So in college, I would have said, you know what? I believe in, in Christianity, and I'm a Christian because it explains life. It explains my experiences that I've had in life with God. By the way, you have a moment where you're like, look, I don't think Christianity is true. The default is in atheism. Atheism is the default. If Christianity is true, that means another religion can be true. Or you need to write a case for atheism. Oftentimes, people do what I did, and they say, I don't like Christianity. I'm just going to default to atheism. Atheism isn't a default. It's a position, and you need to be able to defend it. So now you also need to form your arguments for that as well. So that approach that I took was also not the best. But I came back and I was like, you know what? This is how I would explain the experiences that happened to me in my life. But it was also in college where I had an interesting experience where God began to teach me things from the Bible that he had not taught me before. The song that they just, the worship team did. By the way, kudos to a female drummer. I love that. Yes. I'm a musician as well. I play violin and piano. And so I was like, is that? And I kept, I was like looking all around. That's a female drummer. Like, I'm like, I'm going through all angles down there to make sure I'm seeing this right, right? And I just saw Skillet just a couple weeks ago. And they have a female drummer who kills it too. So if they need a backup, we may have one for them, you know? Anyways, but regardless, uh, this song that they did called Remember, I love this line, the only one who death bows to. I have not heard that song before. But this whole idea of reminding us who we serve is a little bit of what God taught me in college. I had this one particular time where I decided to sit down and, and take a look at the book of Job. And as I was reading Job, uh, you're probably familiar with it. It's a, it's a very familiar book where Job has all of these wonderful things. He's got children, he's got animals, he's healthy, life is good, and then things change. And his animals are taken off, taken away. His children are killed. He ends up sick in his body. And he's crying out to God. And he's got people telling him, curse God and die. Curse God and die. Or you did this wrong. Or you're doing this. You're being punished. All of these things he's being told. 
And for basically chapter 2 slash 3 to chapter 37, Job is crying out to God. God says nothing. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 38, God speaks. And he speaks from chapter 38 to uh, chapter 41. And I want to just kind of just paraphrase a bit of those chapters for you. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this whose darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Prepare yourself like a man, for I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. Who has determined its measurements if you know? Or who has stretched the line upon it? To what are its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth and went out of the womb? When I made the cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and broke up for it my decreed place and set bars and doors and said, this far you will come, but no farther. And here your proud waves must stop. Can you tie the cords of the Pleiades or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you send lightning that they may go forth and say to you, here we are? Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats produce offspring? Or can you observe when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bring forth? Will the wild ox be willing to serve you or spend the night by your manger? Does the hawk fly by your wisdom and stretch her wings toward the south? Does the eagle mount up at your command and make her nest on high? She dwells and remains on the rock, upon the crag of the rock and the strong place. From there she seeks to pray, from her eyes, and her eyes see from afar. Her young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there she is. It's really interesting to me that the question that philosophers and theologians and every other human who has breathed, basically, has pondered as long as we've been on this earth is how is it possible that there is suffering? How is it possible that there is pain? Is it, is it true that there could be a good God and be pain and suffering? Is that even an option? And people go through horrific things and we cry out to God to help us. And Job gets an answer. Job cries out to God and God gives him his audience. And then he speaks. And you know what's interesting to me about this whole section was the fact that God, with full, full knowledge of Job's suffering, God never talks about Job's suffering. All he does is say, Job, do you tell the winds to go here? Do you tell the waves to go here? 
Will the wild ox be willing to bow to you? Job, you have forgotten who I am. You've allowed your circumstances to cloud your view of who I am. So let me just remind you, Job, take a look around you and see my hand all around you. What's fascinating to me, guys, is that God never tells Job why. Why he went through the suffering he went through. And it's not because he forgot. It's because he knew that that's not what Job needed to get better. Chapter 42, after all this incredible encounter with God, Job, I mean, I don't even know what words I would say. But Job says, you know, God, before my ears heard of you, but now my eyes see you. Before my ears heard of you, but now my eyes see you. I see you in your creation around you, around me. I see what you've done. I see your control. I'm seeing who you are again, and I repent for the way I've responded. God continued to, or gave back to Job animals and healed his body. He had more children. But what was interesting to me is that God never responded to that question. In fact, guys, we probably know more about that story than Job because we actually have access to Job 1 and the whole interaction between God and the devil about Job. Did Job ever get that? I don't know. But I do know that what God said is you need to get your vision off of your circumstances and remember who I am. When I learned that in college, it blew my mind. And I was like, oh my goodness, who am I going to tell? Who, do, who can I teach that to? And that for me was so rejuvenating. Because that would be, my, well, how do you, why would you be a Christian in college? Well, because God teaches me things. He helps me to understand things. I know he's there. But now we come to my time as an adult. And as life goes on, you may ask, what excites you still? Now, I've been an apologist for just over eight years, and so I deal with so many different questions that people have. And apologists are notorious for using logic and reasoning and rationality, philosophy, all of these things, evidence to come and explain to people why they believe something is true. That is typically how I would, have, I would respond to this question maybe several years ago. I would talk about the origins of the universe or how science talks about how beautifully fine-tuned the universe is, not just for existence, but for us to be able to live in it. That's a whole nother thing. It's one thing for something to exist. It's another thing for something to come alive. And so, I mean, I could use a lot of those things or, or morality and, and our inner desire for certain things to be right and certain things to be wrong and all of this kind of stuff. But I'm answering this question in 2021. And so in 2021, for me, this would be some of my answer. As I think, one thing is that the reason that I am a Christian is because it influences the way that I look at things and see the world and people around me. I have a friend of mine who is not a Christian. And I asked this particular friend once, I said, you know, has there ever been a time in your life where you wish that there was a God? You know, you've been atheist a long time. Have you ever desired for there to be something bigger than you, be something better than you? 
And he was like, no, not really. And he's like, but you know what? There have been times in my life where I've been struck by the beauty of creation and been sorry that there was no one to thank. Times in my life when I was struck by the beauty of creation and been sorry that there was no one to thank. In other words, what is he saying? Part of him experiencing the beauty of the natural world he sees around him is him wanting to talk to the creator of it. I don't think that's unique to him, actually. I think that's something that we actually could relate to as well. Let me show you this picture. If I was to say to you, you see this picture here, and I want you to pay me $400,000 for this picture. You might say, Alicia, I don't know what they drink in Rochester, New York, but over here, that's not how we do things. Okay? Well, I say, okay, well, let me, let me give you some background here. I know it's scribbles, but several years ago, a young girl was playing with her friends in a war-torn country, and she fell, and a landmine went off, and it took off her arm. And this is the very first picture that she has drawn with her new prosthetic arm. Now does it change the way that you see that picture? Does it look beautiful to you? Does it look like something that you want to just sit with and think about? Is it possible, friends, that without knowing the creator, we actually never have the full ability to capture the full beauty of something? Without knowing who made each one of us, how beautiful can we find you? Now, I'm not saying we don't look at each other as beautiful. I think we can do that. But we will, will we have the full experience is what I'm asking. Just like that friend, that atheist friend who said there's no one to thank, part of him experiencing the full beauty of creation was to know the creator. But he denies that there's a creator. And so his experience is always going to fall short of where he wants it to be. Because that last step, that last connection with the creator would put him over into feeling something fully. Or how about this? Let's say we go into an art museum. And while we're in this particular art museum, we see a beautiful painting by Marc Chagall. And with this particular painting, I say, you know what? I can do this painting. It's nothing special. I can do this painting. I'm going to do a replica of it right next to it. So I paint one right next to it. It looks just the same. I think it looks fine. And I say, well, this Chagall is worth $5 million. Well, mine should be at least four. And so I talk to somebody at the museum, and I tell them what I've done. And, and I say, look at this painting. Isn't this great? I'm looking for about $4 million. I'll give or take a little bit here or there. And the woman looks at me like I'm nuts. She says, Alicia, you don't understand. This painting is by Marc Chagall. Marc Chagall was a Jew. And he painted this picture of the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. And interestingly enough, as a Jewish man, put a cross up in the upper right-hand corner. Why did a Jewish man do that? Because Chagall was fascinated with Jesus. With that said, your picture, well, looks just like that, is not as valuable 
Because you see, what determines the value is how much somebody's willing to pay for something. And people are willing to pay $5 million for that painting. Why? Because Marc Chagall's name is on it. And, the, and whose name is on it determines the value of that painting. The name on your painting is Alicia Wood. There is not much value in that one. People are not going to spend. They'll give you maybe five bucks. But the name of the person on that painting changes the value of what it's worth. Is it possible, friends, that I can't fully see your value unless I know whose name is on you? Is it possible that I will find ways to make you below me or make myself better than you in some way because I don't see a name on you? And once I don't see a name on you, it's easy for me to devalue you. Christianity doesn't allow us to do that. It tells us when we are creating the image of God, it stamps a value on every single one of us. Not because of what we do or how good of artwork we think we are, but because whose name is written on us. So I don't get to devalue you because it's not my name. I'm not the creator. I don't have the power. Is it possible that Christianity helps us fully see beauty and fully see value? I think it does. But additionally, as I've spoken the last several years, there have been questions that have come up that are much, they're much more common. And to be honest, they are things I never thought I would speak on. Questions of anxiety, depression, loneliness, sadness, grief. This human condition where people are looking for reasons to go on. I remember I was at a Q&A once and a woman wrote in a question saying, I suffer from uh, excessive or constant pain, chronic pain. Why should I continue to live? Why is it that we as a people group long for an end to terrorism, an end to racism, an end to injustice, an end to persecution, an end to pain, an end to suffering, an end to tears. We want things to be good. We want world peace. We want happiness. We want things to go right and to go well, yet we feel so much anguish and pain, and we don't want to stay there. We want to go to the good. Why is it that we have a desire for something somewhere? Living in a world where there is no more pain, there is no more tears, there is no more suffering. When you look at what Christianity has to offer, it offers us that. It says right now in this world, it's going to be problems. Jesus himself said, you will have many problems in this world, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. In other words, that world that you're looking for without that tears and the pain and the suffering and the anguish, yeah, that's real. That's coming, but just not yet. So the reason why you have these feelings, these desires, maybe it's more than just a desire. Maybe it's because you are supposed to long for that. Several years ago, well, 
1986, actually, it was a long time ago, there's a comic called The Watchmen. And there's a particular uh, strip in there, comic strip in there, that I just want to read you this line. It says, heard a joke once, man goes to doctor, says he's depressed, says life seems harsh and cruel, says he feels all alone in a threatening world where what lies ahead is vague and uncertain. Doctor says, treatment is simple. Great clown Pagliacci is in town tonight. Go and see him. That should pick you up. And the man bursts into tears and says, but doctor, I am Pagliacci. What happens to us guys when we get to the point in life where the things that made us happy can no longer make us happy? When we grow weary of pleasure. That the things that used to excite us, we look forward to those things. And now we're like, oh, I've been there, done that. It's, eh. What do we look forward to when, we, when the pleasures of life no longer bring us joy? I love how Christianity talks about the word hope. You know, we, we use the word hope really flippantly. We say things like, oh, I hope that you come to my birthday party next week or hope that you get a new car, whatever it might be. And that's fine. That's how we talk. But when Christianity talks about hope, it talks about it in a way that is much more certain. Most of us in here probably drive. And we all know that when you get in a car, you need to put on your seatbelt. Why? Because when you get in your car, there's a chance you could get in a car accident. And putting on your seatbelt will help protect you. Okay? So when we know that there's a possibility or chance of something, we make small adjustments like putting on a seatbelt. But what if you knew that when you got in a car to go to the store today or whatever, you would get in a car accident? Would you get in the car and put on your seatbelt? Or would you not get in the car at all? In other words, when you have a guarantee that this is going to happen, it doesn't make a small change in your life like putting on a seatbelt. It makes a big change in your life where you don't even get in the car at all. A guarantee of something overalls, overhauls how you live, how you function, how you see things. And when Christianity talks about hope, it talks about it in that way. That there is a guarantee of a future world without pain or suffering. And no matter what happens here, no matter how bad you screw things up here, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you come crawling back to that cross, that future world awaits. And there's nothing that can happen here that can make that future world disappear. There's nothing that can happen here that makes God disappear. It's a guarantee. His existence is not contingent upon the things that happen in your life. And when you have that guarantee, guys, it changes the way that you live. It doesn't mean that Christians will always be happy, happy, joy, joy about everything in life. But it does mean that in the midst of pain, in the midst of anguish, there will always be hope. My undergraduate degree was in criminal justice. And as a result of that, I had the ability to uh, get involved in prison ministry. And one of the interesting things about being in prison ministry is when you enter prison, you don't have to convince somebody that they're a sinner. They're, that's pretty well established for them. And oftentimes I would go in and, and, and they would have the, the church service and um, people would be playing instruments and the inmates would raise their hands and praise to God. 
People have done some horrific things. I know what some of them have done. And yet they can raise their hands. Why is it that they can do that? Because they are people who have been redeemed. They are people who have been taught that your life isn't defined by your failures. You can be made new again. You can be someone new. And this idea of redemption, this idea of restoration is not popular in our cancel culture world. When you do something wrong, oh, I separate myself from you. I don't have anything to do with you. I don't touch you. I don't talk to you. Get away from me. And sometimes Christians get caught up in that. And we say, well, they've done this thing wrong, so I can't be anywhere near them. I don't want to buy their shoes or watch their movie or whatever it might be. But guys, what makes us uniquely Christian is not how we respond to sin. It's okay to be disgusted with sin. I actually want you to be disgusted with sin. That's a good thing. It's okay to be upset when something like that, ha- when something happens. But that doesn't make us uniquely Christian. It's how we respond to sin. What makes us uniquely Christian is how we respond to the sinner. You know, I think we can look at Jesus for a model of exactly this. The very first verse of the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew 1 opens like this. This is a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now we know the story of David. We know that he fell in love with the woman who was not his, who was very much married. And he decided he wanted her, which is kind of typical, I guess you could say, maybe of kings at that time. And her son was off at war takes this woman to be his wife, or to, sorry, to be his woman, you could say. She gets pregnant. Now he's in trouble because her husband isn't here. And finds, tries to devise a plan because what tangled web we weave when we practice to deceive. And so he t- comes up with a plan. Well, I'm going to bring the husband back. Then they can be together, and then he'll think the, hus- the baby's his. And his plan doesn't go as planned. The husband doesn't sleep with his wife and goes back to battle. And David makes sure he goes to the front lines so that he dies, which he does. That baby that she was pregnant with consequently dies as a result of their sin. David did not always do things that were pleasing to the Lord. But yet in Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham, we know that story too. If you were here last year, I spoke on the sacrifice of Isaac. And we looked at that passage a bit. Abraham, God made an amazing covenant through Abraham that you'll be the father of many nations. All the nations will be blessed through you. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. All of these wonderful things. But if we keep reading to the end of Genesis chapter 25, in addition to having Um, his son Isaac and Ishmael, it says that after Sarah died, Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines. Which means Abraham had other women and other children. Something very normal in that day, by the way. But yet Matthew 1-1 opens up. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We serve a God who says, I'm not ashamed to be associated with the sinner. 
because the sin doesn't define you. This idea of redemption, of restoration, we find with Jesus himself. If Jesus was ashamed to be associated with broken people, he would not be able to be with any of us because we're all broken. And if we're all broken, then that means associating with other broken people is our only option. That is all that we have to do. You may or may not be familiar with the Japanese art called kintsugi. In Japan, obviously, there's many earthquakes, and oftentimes the pottery that they have on their shelves falls off and it breaks. And when you look at this pottery that's broken, you wonder, does this this have value anymore? Many people just throw it away. It's not how it once was. So let's get rid of it. But a kintsugi artist doesn't believe that. And they take those pieces and they use silver, gold, platinum to mend that bowl or that egg, whatever it was, back together. And in so doing, they take something that was broken and they make it beautiful again. Something that somebody said had no value, that could be thrown away, that could be discarded, they still find a way to restore. One of the things that I'm so grateful to Christianity for is that it does not say that your brokenness is your permanent state. You are not defined by that. So that means I can go into a prison and say to somebody that you are not defined by your greatest failures. You can still be made beautiful again. Christianity offers redemption. It offers restoration of the individual. And in 2021, that matters in a culture that says, I want to erase you. It offers something different. And while the bowl is no longer flawless, it doesn't mean that after the repair, it can't be seen as beautiful. But we don't make ourselves beautiful. Jesus makes us beautiful. It's not because the reason why my life isn't defined by those failures is not because I've done a bunch of good things that have made up for my failures. It's because he's given me his goodness. He, in a sense, has like put his cloak of goodness around me. So it's not mine. I'm just covered in his. And so my failures don't take that cloak off. My failures help me to keep that cloak and pull it tighter. And as Jesus mends our broken lives, as he mends our pain, it lets us know that we can be made somebody new. The old is gone and the new has come. You know, several years ago I was in Canada and uh, I, was at a, I was at an event, that, a particular event that I was speaking at. And at that particular event was a young Muslim girl. And she kind of decided to leave the event early for whatever reason it was. But I talked with her a bit when she left. And she's like, you know, this is what I don't understand about you Christians. You know, she says, you guys say that you just believe and you can go to heaven. So doesn't mean you can just live however you want. It was a fair question. How is it that you can just believe and then somehow go to heaven? Like Like your deeds don't matter. 
And so I talked with her about this. I said, you know, I can understand why you'd say that. But let me explain something to you. When a parent, when a woman is pregnant with a baby, baby can be uncomfortable at times. Doesn't want her to sleep, moves around, kicks this way, can't eat this, whatever it might be. And then the thing is born and has the nerve to wake her up still. I want food, I want diaper, I just want, I just want, I'm just up. And for many years, that child does not earn its keep. And it keeps sucking life and energy. And it has done nothing to deserve the love of those parents, yet the parents love it anyways. In other words, the parents love it not because of the good actions that the child did, but because that child is theirs. Christians believe first and accept that they are not good enough to get to heaven on their own. And, and so they need somebody else to bridge that gap. We can't get to heaven and be with the perfect God because we're not perfect. He can't be with imperfect things. So how does he fix us? He clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus. And because he's a good, he's probably he's a perfect God, he also has to carry out justice for the things we do wrong. But the justice falls on Jesus on the cross. Jesus pays the penalty, gives us his goodness, and now we are able to be reconciled with God. So yes, Christians believe in who Jesus is and they accept that gift and then we do good things. Not to earn it because we've already gotten it, but we do good things because we're grateful, because we want to please him, because we want to bring him joy, because he asks it of us and he's given us so much. And so she said, it's almost like you're, you're safe in Christianity. And I said, yeah, you're, you are safe. Because people who believe that you have to do a bunch of good things to get to heaven are always wondering, have I done enough good things yet? Does God like me yet? Or do I have to do one more and then God will like me? Or maybe it's one more. Or if it's 10 more, what happens if I die before I get to that number 10? Or wait, I've lost track. I don't remember how many good deeds I did today. Is it enough? Oh man, am I ever going to make it there? Somebody who's looking to get to God by their good deeds goes through that internal wrestle. There's no sense of safety. And she said, but with your view, you can feel safe. And I said, yes. And she says, it's almost as if heaven is God's house and you don't need the key. And I said, you're right. You're absolutely right. You don't need the key, honey. Because when you get there, not only do you find the door unlocked, but you find it wide open. You don't need the key. And having a, a belief like Christianity lets us know we don't have to strive to be accepted and loved by the creator who stamped his name on us. What if I mess up? He won't find me beautiful anymore, Alicia. Your acceptance was never based off of your good deeds anyways. A few weeks ago, I had a young man come up to me at an event I was in. He said, Alicia, do you think God is perfect? I said, yes. Do you think he's all-knowing? I said, yes. Do you think he's all-powerful? I said, yes, but based off of your questions, 
You're making me wonder. It's like, well, do you think God makes mistakes? I said, no. He says, because I think God made a mistake with me. He struggled with same-sex attraction. And he concluded that the only way that I could be here is if God accidentally made a mistake. And I took him, I said, you are not a mistake. Let me first of all tell you the junk I've done. And number two, your value is not tied up in your attraction. Sure, God has a stance for marriage, romantic love between heterosexual couples, male and female in marriage, but that doesn't mean he messed up with you. That's your struggle, but somebody else might struggle with gossip or lying or slander or pride or wherever. Doesn't mean you're a mistake. It just means welcome to the club. We're all screwed up. And so in Christianity, we have this idea that we are not defined by our failures. We're not defined by the ways that we fall short of living how we want to live. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that while atheism would tell this young man he is a mistake because he can't reproduce. And so there's no place for him in this world as someone who can't help our species survive. That's what atheism will tell you. What Christianity will tell you is you're so valuable and beautiful that God was willing to die for you. So don't you dare think that you are somehow less because that's your struggle. Not every faith will tell you that. Not every faith will let you know that your beauty and value is not contingent upon you, that redemption is available to you. Is something that you all need to know. And so I leave you with these final three questions. What are you doing about faith, whatever faith you have? Is what you're doing helping you? And if not, what do I do differently? Consider Christianity a belief that allowed a man like Job who had gone through so much torture to look back and when he encountered who God was, say, I now see you. Give it a shot and maybe you will see him too. Come to a strange place when um, the speaker says we're all screwed up and everyone applauds. <laughs> um, if you're exploring the things of Christianity, um, and all you know of it is what you see in the media, which is, you know, anger and arrogance. That's not Christianity. Those who are followers of Christ are, before anything else, broken people. We're conscious of it. We're also conscious of the redemption and of the freedom that comes in knowing Christ. There's a beauty in that, as was expressed by the Japanese artists, in that restoration. And there's a desire then to do things and to change and to live life in a different way, not to be approved of, but because we are. And we walk that with a simplicity. We walk that with a humility. There is no arrogance. There's not to be a violence of any type within the Christian walk. If that's something that you're still exploring, then talk to one of us. There'll be people available up front here afterwards for prayer. At least you'll be around afterwards, and you'll find her extremely approachable. Alicia, thank you for being with us. Thank you for making the trek.
you can keep your sports affiliations, but we are going to make a Detroiter out of you. <laughs> we are. We're just slowly doing it over time, that's all. Next week, Abdu Murray, another good friend of ours, mutual friend of ours, is actually going to be here as well. Um, there's events happening throughout the week. If you don't have one of the reignition uh, folders or pamphlets out there, catch that so you can keep track of what's taking place. A lot of different things. But uh, keep pursuing God, folks, as we work towards our fall launch that second Sunday in September uh, and launch off again with things. Father, we come before you in thanksgiving. I really ask your special blessing upon Alicia and the team that she works with, God, that you continue to strengthen her and encourage her, even as she strengthens and encourages and speaks to so many different people around this nation, Lord God, especially young students in college who are processing things, God, even as she was. I pray, God, that you continue to guide us as your church. We lift our nation up to you, Father. We lift our state and the leaders in our state and our city. But guide us as your people, I pray, God. Let us chew upon these things today and meditate upon your word throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.